I just had a donut. <laughs> that was not, that was totally out of left field. That was my lunch today. Oh, <laughs> did you did you have a punchki? Oh, it's getting to be February. No, I did. I had a a donut from Washtenaw Dairy. Oh, that's pretty good. Also, yeah, yeah, that could, it works. It's not as good as a uh, uh, Bavarian cream punchki, though. <laughs> when I eat punchkis, though, I always go for fruit. Oh well, that's too healthy. I'm not sure that you could really consider fruit punchkis <laughs> to be healthy. I don't think it. I don't think. Okay. It, I don't think anywhere on the health scale. Oh, it says a Bavarian-filled punchki only has 390 calories. Oh, totally healthy. Raspberry. It says 390. Also, that's just complete crap. It's all sugar. It doesn't matter if it's red sugar or if it's white sugar. It actually says that in the raspberry one, there's 56 carbs, while in the Bavarian filled, there's 37 carbs. So, raspberry filled, worse. Oh, no, no. Okay, if, I guess if carbs are, are some some measure of worse for you, carbs are carbs are bad, man. Bad. I thought we'd start off by acknowledging the fact that we have uh, we've got some people in that we're going to interview lined up. Yes. That's pretty exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah, we have um, a few people, uh, four, five people now. Yeah. That uh, have actually agreed to do this. Which means they have to. Which means they have to. That's exactly right. But that's exciting. We have people. We have people. <laughs> we have people. And diverse people, too. Yeah. I mean, diverse in what they do. Yes, very much so. Okay, I, uh, I have an experiment that I want to just run by you um okay. we don't have to talk about this for very long but uh it's it's somewhat timely and as we get further away from last month it'll become less timely so the experiment is um so people have seen the star wars movie and as we've talked about before i, I like the star wars movies but they're not i'm not a crazy uh, rabid fan or anything I, I i've watched actually i just recently watched all three of the original three so four five and six with my boys uh, and, yeah. and so that was like the first time I think ever that I'd seen Return of the Jedi all the way through. I'd seen, hmm. you know, large chunks here and there. So, you know, we're not talking about somebody that that is overly vested in what happens in the franchise or anything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, the reason that I wanted to get the boys to see the three movies was because I want to take them to the seat to the theater to see the new one. And um, since I don't particularly care that much, I, I've decided that. And, and a lot of people are talking about the movie. So, you know, friends are talking about the movie uh, and people are bringing it up on the podcast and things like that. I don't care about spoilers. So I basically said, well, screw it. You know, I'm going to hear everything before I go to see the, see the movie. And then maybe I'll, I'll be able to think about how getting all these spoilers changes my, my, how I think the movie is, my perception of the movie and that sort of thing. So my experiment is to basically hear as much as possible about the movie before I go uh, and then to see if I okay. think I like it more or less somehow. Yes. So how do you, I mean, you, that's not like a blind test whatsoever. Well, yeah. There's no way to, I don't think there's a way to control that, you know, because yeah. I can't go back and unsee it. And unhear. Yeah. You'd basically have to take a, a random sample of like 25 movies, uh, where you hear something in 25 movies where you don't, and then hopefully you have enough of a distribution in there where you could say, my mean level of satisfaction was higher when I heard spoilers. Yes. 
And, uh, yeah, so this is by no means a scientific experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, we should get, you know, if I, if I only had 100,000 people that would also participate in this experiment oh. with me, it'd be great. Yeah, that's a good idea, too. But I was reading something, and I don't remember what it was. Um, this is right about the time when I started hearing about Star Wars, that back um, back pretty, uh, uh, quite a few decades ago, I think, that movie... Um, movie producers would actually spoil their movies on purpose. Like they would, they would mm. tell you exactly what was going to happen to get you to go see the movie. I call it experiment, but it's just really, I, I don't care. And, and so I didn't want to like, anytime my friends are talking about the movie, be like, shut up. <laughs> All right. My opinion is that I don't actually care about spoilers whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so I like, Star Wars, and I'm probably a bigger fan than you are. I'm not a, um, I don't like get dressed up and I don't talk about Star Wars very often and stuff like that, but I really like them. Um, and I listened to whatever podcasts were there, um, uh, before I went and saw the movie. We saw it like the third day it was out, so I hadn't actually gotten any spoilers, but. There are some movies where, like, I, I'm not sure if I would like the movie or not. And so I've listened to spoilers just to see what other people thought of the movie and then um, go in with uh, some, I guess, um, knowledge of the movie, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's really interesting to hear other people's opinion and then you have, like, a really reduced expectations or really elevated expectations and so you're either like really pleasantly happy about it or crushingly disappointed with it <laughs> well that's it that's the idea right is is the movies that exceed your expectations are always the ones that are best and so right you know it, it's more it's very much a subjective i mean it's a subjective measure of a subjective measure right everybody yeah. likes different movies differently and then the way that you perceive them before you even sit set foot in the theater uh, is going to affect what you think. Yeah, so this Star Wars movie sucked really, really bad. <laughs> Thank you. You should definitely not go see it. <laughs> Thank you. Soon. <laughs> so it's like a some sort of a quantum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've just you've just disturbed the experiment. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> oh, do you want me to give you a bunch of spoilers on what happens? I'm pretty or... sure that I know everything that happens in the film. Yeah, yeah, you've listened to a lot of podcasts yes. about it. Uh, I yeah. mean, a couple, but you know, one in particular was two hours of talking about the Star Wars movie. <laughs> yes. So yes. you know, more discussion it's... on the movie than the movie actually lasts. Right, right. It's hard to um, not know what happens in the movie after listening to something like that. But that's okay. I, I don't know. You know, I'm still willing to go see it. It, it. It's more than just what happens. It's how it happens and how the characters change and yeah. what the characters do. You know, yeah. That affects how you think a movie is. So we'll see. Do you ever, um, like when you see a Star Wars movie, so that I have to say, and I'm not going to spoil anything here whatsoever, but the one of the hardest things for me to, to do when I watch movies like Star Wars is the complete suspension of disbelief of the, um, the physics in the movie, mm -hmm. you know? And 
and sadly I can go through I can go to like an Iron Man movie and I already know that it, the physics is going to suck you know and right. Avengers the physics is going to suck it's not even close to reality but Star Wars I sort of expect it to be closer to the you know reality to physics that you might expect but that's not really true either because lightsabers are pretty much impossible things and <laughs> blasters are pretty much impossible things and blah, blah, blah. But still, when I was watching the movie, I was, I just kept thinking, uh, what, 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 why are, they, what? <laughs> and, and, you know, I couldn't get my mind to stop that, you know? Yeah, I, I get that. I don't really know. Um, when I go to see a movie, I, I, I don't. I try really hard not to pay attention to stuff like that. And I find that I only do that if um, I don't like the movie. So if it's not a movie that mm. I'm enjoying, then I start to nitpick. I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's not possible. Yeah. Um, and so maybe I'm good about turning my, my science brain off for a little while sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. With Star Wars, I don't... The first movies happened so long ago in a in a time when, you know production values are so much smaller and special effects right. budgets were tiny that it's sort of, it's part of that. It's still part of that or, or that history is still part of this movie. And I feel yes. like because of that, you, it's allowed to get away with some things that newer movies wouldn't ordinarily be allowed to get away with. Right. So when I, when I watch star Wars and, and maybe this shouldn't be a review of star Wars, but, but, but I felt like the, the latest movie, I felt like it fit perfectly into the um, the three movies, like um, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Like it fits really well into those movies, um, and so I, I thought, you know, it's a fantastic movie from that standpoint. But then I started judging it, you know, above and beyond that for some reason, and I don't really know why I did that. Um, I think because uh, maybe my expectations were so high, you know, because everybody was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, L like I had super high expectations. Um, and then I, I wasn't really disappointed with it, but I, I just had troubles with the suspension of disbelief stuff. Yeah, I think Which, that's fair. I don't I yeah. don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I, I, I yeah. And since I haven't seen it yet, I I can't comment on any yeah. specific stuff and like you mentioned the lightsabers and things like that you know those those go back so far that i don't think you would you would right. count that because oh that's no. i mean you could not have there, there has to be lightsabers in the movie yeah 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 can't, yeah, can't yeah. and i totally that that definitely wasn't the suspension of right. disbelief stuff for me there were two issues that were really big one was just sort of the coincidences like in a galaxy that's super big they just happen to be at the right place at the right time yeah and it just happens over and over and over again and people say well that's the force at work you know and like okay so we sort of bring magic into it um you know okay yeah i i understand what you're saying i don't know yeah um and and that's a perfectly reasonable opinion to have yeah i feel like a true non-believer though <laughs> Well, <laughs> turns out that it, it is it is make believe anyway, so you're okay. <laughs> That's huh. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> All right. That's enough about Star Wars. Um 
So are you, when are you going to go see it? I don't know. I was hoping maybe, I was thinking maybe this weekend, but it just depends on other stuff. So I don't know. Probably soon. If you go see it again uh, this weekend, maybe I'll go with you. All right. Uh, You're going to take your kids? That's the plan. And so your youngest is how old? Three. Three. Has he ever gone to see a movie in the movie theater? Yes, he saw he saw Sean the Sheep, I think, with my wife. Oh. <laughs> I hear it's and quite good. That's a good movie for a three-year-old? Star Wars? No, Sean oh, the Sheep. Oh, Sean the Sheep. Uh, I don't know. I didn't see it. I, uh, my wife went. I think it was, yeah, I think she said it was fine. Yeah. She said the boys are laughing pretty pretty heavily. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that that's a good movie for a three-year-old. Um the first movie my oldest saw, I think, was Finding Nemo mm-hmm. um, in the movie theater. And that was like a that was like a horrifying experience for him. Yeah, uh, because, um, you know, the first thing that happens is Nemo die or Nemo's right. mom. Right. Died. Oh, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Nemo's mom dies. Yeah. First 30 seconds of the movie and then um there are sharks which are scary and and, and you know uh, you don't really think about kids movies being like terrifying but they don't have to be um like super violent to be terrifying. Oh yeah. And and Nemo was um pretty terrifying. A lot of the Pixar movies are pretty terrifying. We found and so uh, that, I think it went okay, but it was um, a little dicey at times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think we had taken Ethan to other films before he saw Shaun the Sheep, but I think Shaun the Sheep might have been the first one where he actually watched the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't just kind of a big pain in the butt <laughs> to have in the theater. Yes, yes. Uh, so... And I, of yeah. course, I wasn't there for that. So, but Lindsay, I think Lindsay reported that he he was just you know frozen, glued to the glued to the screen, and and laughing heartily. So, that's awesome. Uh, so the worst experience that we ever had was not really worst. the The most troubling, I would say, uh, is in San Antonio. Um, there were people that would take their kids to just about any movie. Uh, so somebody took like their three, four year old kid to see Con Air. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they like enjoyed a, that as a three or four yeah, year old. Yes, at like a ten o'clock in the evening show, ten o'clock at night show. That was just crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, somebody took their baby to see The Matrix, um, which you know. So that's a that's a question, like. Is it appropriate to take a kid that's under one to a movie? Um, you could, I think you could argue that no, it's not really appropriate because it's really loud and everything. And like, they're not going to watch the movie and stuff. Um, but at the same time, like what happens if you're like a single parent and you can't get a babysitter and you just want some time off, you know? Oh yeah, I mean I agree. Um, I I don't think I'd be worried. Yeah, I guess it's loud uh, for the kid, but I don't know that it's so loud that it's it's gonna damage anything. Right. I mean, De- definitely. And the baby the baby's certainly not gonna watch the movie or get anything from it. Um, right. 
I think it's inappropriate just because you're bringing a baby to a theater, which is a place that should be quiet. Yeah, well, there's that, yeah. too. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the person um, watched, like, the first five minutes of it, and then the baby started crying, and they had to go. Oh, okay. Well, at least they had the good sense to leave. Yeah. It's too bad when you're on an airplane, you can't just step off the airplane <laughs> when, you're, when your baby starts to cry. <laughs> that is too bad. <laughs> All right, time to go and get the parachutes on. Sorry. All right, get the parachutes. Sorry, everybody. We're only halfway Sorry, home, we're, but, you know, yep, we'll, we'll get the next here. one. We're out of here. <laughs> oh, Joey, um, Joey has had many great flight experiences with uh, young children. Yeah, sadly, like, the kids seem to behave just fine when there are the two of us. Um, you know, and this is many, many, many years ago. Uh, but there were some flights where Joey was flying alone with either one or two kids and, like, disaster struck, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Yeah, that's 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 really hard. And then, you know, she has to do it again or, like, there's the option to do it and do it again. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not yeah. doing this. Yeah. Yeah, we have a friend who, uh, like, flew down to Texas with three kids by herself mm -hmm. and the and the flight out you know she was super super nervous um and then everything went just smooth as butter you know uh but then on the way back um everything just went complete to pot you oh, know yeah. she said like um she had two seats for uh two of the kids and was holding one of the kids and like the one kid that she was holding wouldn't go to sleep and the person in the chair behind her the seat behind her was like thinking that he was helping by like playing peekaboo with the kid <laughs> yeah. and so keeping the kid awake even more and she just wanted to like turn around and scream at the guy to shut up so she could put the kid to sleep and you know it just went like downhill all of them were like super tired yeah and uh wouldn't go to sleep yeah, that's really hard. I mean, it's really hard when you, especially if you have a little one on your lap, the whole goal of the of your flight is to get that kid to go to sleep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, it's yeah. great if somebody's, at least they're, you know, not jerks that you've got a kid that maybe is making right. noise or something. But yeah, I can see how that would get frustrating if you're like, I just need this thing to go to sleep. Please leave it alone. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I had a really bad experience when I flew with the boys uh, to Florida to visit my parents who were on vacation. Uh -huh. On the way back, the boys are fine on the flight. They they did okay. But on the way back, um, I, I just started feeling nauseous right when I got to the airplane. I was just like, I don't feel good. I don't know what's going on. And I think Ethan was um, Ethan was one and Ben was four. You know, So Ethan was on my lap. Um, and I'm just like, man, I don't feel good. That's okay. I'm going home. It's only a two-hour flight. No big deal. So I get on the plane. I get in my seat. And Ethan and I have a middle seat and Ben's got the, the window. And, and so a lady comes down to sit on the edge and I'm like, I'm really sorry. I, I just wanted to let you know that I'm, I'm not feeling well. So I might have to get up and excuse myself. And so she took that as a cue to go find a different seat, which was really nice. So yes. I did have, you know, so we had the row and then, yeah, as soon as we get in the air, I had to go to the bathroom and I was, I was sick on the plane several times and that, oh, that wasn't no. such a big deal. You know, there was a guy next to me who seemed to be not, not insane so i just said when i went into the bathroom i kind of took ethan with me and put him like on the side and just said make sure this this four-year-old doesn't go running around the plane or anything right um the bad thing happened when we touched down and ben had slept for a lot of the flight 
but you know, like the instant we touched down, he threw up all over the aisle, just oh, no. everywhere, out of nowhere. I'm like, oh man! Oh, and so no. now, like it, you know, we've got we've got landing and taxi to the to the to the door with just the the worst smell of vomit oh, in yeah. the world, and I'm I'm sick already. <laughs> and Ethan's just waking up, so he's starting to cry. And I'm just, I feel horrible because now there's vomit everywhere. It's just like, (laughs) oh, my God. Yeah. And so I had to call Lindsay. I think just before we touched down, I called her or texted her on the plane. I'm like, you have to come pick us up because I had driven. And Uh I'm like, I can't make it home. Um, You have to come pick us up. And then the whole way home, Ben was throwing up in the car. It's just a nightmare. We had, um, so that that sounds very similar to uh, when we were flying back from Italy um yeah landing in jfk um like the kid in the aisle across from us um threw up like with three or four hours to go and they just taped off the bathroom like he he must have just destroyed the bathroom man so they just taped it off yeah and he went back to the seat and everything and was okay until touchdown and then as soon as the wheels touched he just like let it fly <laughs> and you know he's in a middle seat and oh, so it's God. just it's everywhere oh, you know God, that's horrible it was horrible <laughs> and then um you know they're in the same row with us and so we basically walked through customs and walked through immigration control and everything with them and I felt so bad because he just had vomit like all over him. Yeah. And he couldn't really do anything yeah, about it. You're kind of stuck. You're stuck. Oh, it was so horrible. I felt so bad. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Hopefully nobody is mad at him. <laughs> right. You're not in control. Right. Yeah, you can't really do anything about that. Yeah. So this has turned from Star Wars to vomiting on airplanes. That sounds about right. <laughs> this is uh this is our podcast you never know where you're gonna go all right so what's so what's next we uh we had a couple of things you want to talk about today you had mentioned talking about some rules uh or would you like to jump into hobbies uh let's talk about because one of our main topics on this or probably in the early shows is going to be the end of the world uh or i would like to talk about the end of the world um we should talk about some ground rules in making our lists. Okay, that sounds good. I don't know who wouldn't like to talk about the end of the world, so I think we're in good shape here. I know, I know. It's very, very exciting stuff. <laughs> so what did you have mind for these gro- have in mind for these ground rules? All right, so, um, so the end of the world you could define in many different ways. So what we're talking about here is that we would like to make like top five lists on how we think the quote end of the world will happen or something like that. Okay. And specifically you're, you're not thinking the world will blow up. You're, you're referring more to humanity, right? Yeah. So, so that's where we get to the rules. Okay. So, um, usually when people talk about the end of the world, they talk about the end of human civilization or the end of all life on earth or something like that. And there aren't very many events that will actually like destroy all of civilization on earth or all of life on earth. And so really what we want to talk about are events that would have like horrific devastation for people on earth. 
Okay. So um, something like, you know, 50% of the population is strongly affected or 50% of the population dies or something like that. Does that sound like a good number? Do you want to go up to like 90 percent 90 dead i like what do you what do you what are your thoughts on this uh i feel like you know i feel like the margins of error here on on, uh, on our uh topics that we we ultimately discuss whatever they are going to be they're going to be sizable so i think 50 50 will be a good number to shoot for when we're so, talking about so like, the end of the world so the black plague wouldn't have counted really the black plague would not have counted yeah, but like, it, you know, some diseases really have a good shot of knocking, you know, knocking, um, killing off something like 20 to 30 percent of the population. I like I like your, your gross misuse of statistics. They really have a good chance, you know. <laughs> well, they have. <laughs> if you watch some movies, you know, they they kill everybody. Not everybody, you know. Right. So um, I, I would agree, right? If if the Black Plague happened today, that would be a different story, right? It wouldn't be. Yes. It would be much worse. I would have to think. So so those could those could those could count. Right. Well, actually, I don't know if they would be much worse. Well, so that's something that we could talk yeah, about. Yeah. All right. So if you get to specifics, rats, right? Yeah. Rats are the pro- okay. So I guess it would be hard to carry. Uh, let's not get into the details, but my point <laughs> is that you know if you people travel globally now a lot more. Oh, that's yes. So yeah, I, it's a, I agree it's with It's a that. lot easier to to spread those sorts of things on a global like scale. Air, airborne disease right. uh, would spread like wildfire. Right. That could that could be bad. So that could you know maybe that ends up being one of the things we consider. So as a teaser, do you have what's your favorite way that humanity will be annihilated? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a. G- I, I have not asked myself that question. Oddly enough, <laughs> well, yes. I, you know, I'm. I, I don't. I don't like to admit this to myself, but I think. I think that whatever it is, it's going to be caused by humans. So if that's like a mm. weaponized, you know, sort of nasty flu, uh, or something like that, that spreads very easily. Yeah, that might be very close to the top of my list. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, actually, what was your your specific question again, though? What What is the top of my list? What do I think is the most likely to occur, or what do I think uh, is yeah, the most interesting? Yeah, so that's that's the question, really. Too is like, if you have a top five list, is it number one is the most likely to occur, or number one is sort of the most fascinating? Mm-hmm. Or not really fascinating, but I mean, it's the most interesting to you, or something. Um, yeah, yeah, I, something like I that. I guess, I guess the the idea, the idea. This is scary. The idea of like a <laughs> weaponized um, virus terrifies me because it may be the most likely to occur, or it's probably towards the top. But it's also, you know, if you compare that to like an asteroid hitting the Earth. I would yeah. say that in the course, you know, in the course of geologic time, th- at some point there is going to be an uh, uh, an extinction, a mass extinction level asteroid that's going to hit the Earth. So yes. that is certainly going to happen. Um, yeah. And and on the other hand, I don't think 
I certainly don't think that a weaponized virus that is extremely destructive is certainly going to happen. Um, right. But at the same time, I think if you compare how likely is are, are these things to happen in the you know, next 100 years. So what do you think? What's at the top of your list? Space weather. Oh. No, 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 not at all, actually. Not at all. I think that we are doing just a fantastic job of making it so um, antibiotics become less and less and less effective. And I've actually listened to some things that say, you know, there are certain strains of bugs that are just completely immune to all antibiotics that we have now. Yeah, superbugs. Superbugs. And if one of those superbugs turns into something that's pretty horrible, then we're sort of screwed, you know? Yeah. yeah. And the sad thing to me, and we can talk about this much further at, uh, at length, um, and I'm going to make some crazy, crazy statement, but because it is... Um, election season, I'm going to blame superbugs killing off the world population on the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> All right, that's good. That seems reasonable. <laughs> and so, so okay, join me in our thought experiment here for a second. Okay. All right. Let's uh, six degrees of separation between super flu and and uh, Iowa caucuses. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is this is crazy time. I'm dwelling into crazy time. Uh, so you could argue that um, people who uh, do campaigning and stuff in Iowa have basically caused corn farmers to get gigantic subsidies which goes into feeding a lot of our cows and chickens and stuff corn. Uh, cows can't digest corn very well, so they get sick a lot on corn, which then means that farmers pump a lot of antibiotics into them, which then we Americans eat a lot of that beef that has a lot of antibiotics in it, um, which makes it so antibiotics are all over the place. Uh, and the more prevalent antibiotics are, the more superbugs you get because they breed and they become immune to antibiotics, which then leads to like having superbugs around, which leads to death of everybody on the planet. <laughs> that got out of control very quickly. Yes, as a as a super flu would. Right. <laughs> yes, that's true. Okay, so I mean, I get the basic premise though is that because we we have the technology to um, control uh, these sort of bacterial populations and things like that with medications um, and drugs, that because these these things are um there are so many of them you're just basically speeding up evolution yes and you're you're actively selecting out the ones that are immune to the things that we can we can kill them with therefore the ones left over are going to be the really really bad ones yeah and and um on some podcast that i listened to um they were talking about how 
you know, when penicillin was invented uh, back a while ago, it became almost useless within like two years. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the bacteria that it was supposed to fight against just morphed and became immune to it. And so they had to come up with another um, antibiotic. And then, you know, it's been a running um, war between how fast we can come up with antibiotics and, and how quickly how quickly they evolve, superbugs evolve. And so um, we're actually, like, losing that battle, which is scary. Yeah, it, it is certainly a little bit scary. Yeah. Okay, so... So that's a contender. <laughs> that's a contender. Right. <laughs> right. If, if Donald Trump wins the Iowa caucuses, <laughs> we are all dead. That's that's where I'm going. That's that's my statement. I thought that that was going to come in there somewhere. <laughs> this is this is a this is now a political podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry man. I know you didn't want to talk about politics, but that's where we've gone. No, so um yeah, so ground rules, I think I think uh, with these ground rules, which are not really well laid out whatsoever, um, but, you know, go off and make your list, and I will go off and make my list, and next week, um, or next podcast, why don't we talk about, um, like, your top five, if you have a top five, and I will talk about my top five, and then maybe we'll go in deeper on a couple of them. Okay. All right, that sounds reasonable. All right. I'm excited for this very uh, happy and lively conversation that we're going to have. It's going to be great. All right, so um, how about, let's talk about hobbies. Okay, yeah, hobbies. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about hobbies because um, uh, my sister and I, maybe like eight years ago, maybe nine years ago now, God, it's been so long, uh, we decided to do like a photo a day uh, blog thing. And so I had a pretty crappy camera at that time, uh, just a point and shoot Canon camera. And um, I did that for like two or three months with that camera. And then I decided that I needed to get a slightly better camera. So I bought like the bottom of the line DSLR Um and then, you know, took pictures and pictures and pictures. I probably took about 15,000 pictures within the first two years that I owned the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of pictures. And I feel like I've been getting better and better and better with this. But um, maybe two or three years ago, I hit a wall where um, I realized that... I was looking at all of my pictures and thinking, this is just crap. Because I started comparing them to more professional pictures. You know, you I got into my hobby so much that I reached a level where I thought, well, the only way to continue this is like if I take it to the the next level. You know, I have to take it to some sort of like a professionalism thing or I have to start taking classes and learning in great detail what I'm doing wrong and you know really investing a huge amount of time and energy into it 
and I really didn't have the time. And so I basically almost completely gave up photography because <laughs> every time I take pictures now, I just look at them and go, oh, I see this flaw and I see that flaw. And, you know, I, and so I wanted to talk about how like hobbies, do you ever have, have you ever had a hobby like with climbing or running or swimming or anything where you just thought like, I shouldn't even bother anymore because I'm not good enough to compete at this level or something. Or do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. Um, I guess, well, I'll start by saying, starting with, well, mentioning swimming really quickly. Cause as you know, I swam for many, many years and I, it's not something I would have, I would ever have labeled as a hobby. Yeah. Cause you know, like I swam as a part of my life for high school and in the, and when I was at college and it was just what I did. Uh, I don't know that it was a hobby because I think a lot of what kept me doing it is because what that's what I did. And, and so obviously when you're doing swimming and you're, you're training to compete in races, like you're, you're, the whole point is to get better. And so if I, if I didn't ever get better or if I didn't think that I could get better because I was training, then I probably would have been done. And then once, once college is over, I'm like, okay, I can be done with this uh, because I'm not compelled to do it anymore. I yeah. don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So swimming, I don't, I can't even talk about as a hobby in that way. Um, maybe climbing is, is closer mm-hmm. to that. And now I, I do Aikido. And so I get what you're saying. So I, I, I think yes and no, I think it depends on the hobby. So like I do Aikido a lot right now and I've been doing it for just over a year. So it hasn't been a, a, a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but climbing I did for quite a long time. And yeah, I always did that because I was trying to get better. And, and the same thing with Aikido is I, I get a huge amount of pleasure because I, I get better and I continue to try to improve. Um, but there are other hobbies that I've had. Um, like, you know, I play guitar and I don't, I wouldn't say that I've gotten better at guitar in a long time. I play a lot and I play new music a lot, but I don't know that I've gotten better at actually being a guitarist. Yeah. Um, and so I, I play, you know, I play guitar because it gives me enjoyment. Hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, when I rock climbed a lot, I climbed because it gave me enjoyment, but I also did it because I was trying to get better and be as best as I possibly could, you know? Yeah. And so it was very frustrating when I was climbing and, you know, you in climbing, like, like most like most things you plateau and the better you get at something, the the more frequent and longer the plateaus tend to be. So when you take pictures, you're looking, you're looking to get more out of it. Yeah. So my wife has accused me of this, uh, like not really, uh, taking pictures to capture memories. Um, when I take pictures, I most of the time take pictures because I want to like capture something really beautiful. And for me, beauty is like really cool symmetry and things and um, interesting colors and things or um, textures and stuff like that. Um, I do tend to capture like pictures of family um, while we're on vacation, but having two teenagers that is become more strained because they don't want their picture taken. Um, And so that that just is sort of a constant battle there. And so I've sort of given up. The vast majority of my pictures of family are like um, Joey and the kids ahead of me on a hiking trail and just the three of them hiking sort of off in the distance. (laughs) That sounds very familiar. Yes, yes. 
I actually, so it's funny because I actually have some pictures of you and your kids um, with uh, a couple dogs hiking off in the distance too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. Those are good pictures. I like, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but the, you know, that stuff, like when you're taking pictures of, of, of me and my kids, you weren't. It wasn't because you were going to look, obviously look back at this picture and be like, oh, remember that day I was hiking with Dave and we held hands and it was, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you were trying to capture like a moment for me in much the same way that a professional would like trying to, this is a really pretty picture and, and well, this composition. Okay. So I think when I snap pictures of like people walking down hiking trails and stuff, that is sort of to preserve the moment. And to say, oh, I remember that day when we were hiking through the woods. Um, but the vast majority of pictures that I take are because I want to think of beautiful things and stuff like that. Um, it, it, yeah, so when I take pictures of people on walks and people, um, you know, the family against a mountain backdrop and stuff, it's because I want to remember like where we were and who we were and all of that stuff. But I, I do tend to take a lot of pictures which are just trying to capture some some form of beauty or something. And I'm I'm just sort of disappointed because uh, like the picture that I have in mind is not exactly the picture that I take. So you're describing how you are basically, you know, subjectively evaluating your own photography and you're comparing it against other professionals in some sense right and so that's what you're saying is because you you've taken some pictures and, and you look at them and you you compare them to some other picture you might have seen before and you're like this is crap it's not nearly as good as as what this other person would have done or something like that so you've you've stopped taking as many pictures well so i think what ends up happening is that um I've looked at a lot of really, really, really nice pictures online. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's sort of misleading. That's skewing my brain on what a really good picture is. Because everybody, when people put their pictures on photography blogs and photography pages and stuff, they might put like their best picture from the last three or four years, you know? And so you just get these absolutely drop-dead gorgeous pictures all of the time. And then... I compare my, you know, my hundred pictures that I took, my top hundred pictures that I took in Italy or something like that, and I, I pick out, like, the top few of those, and I think, ah, uh, even these aren't necessarily the best pictures, you know, these aren't great pictures compared to all these subjectively gorgeous pictures that are online, you know, and so I, I look at them and I just see flaws in it, just like when you're climbing and you can't, like, ascend a trail or ascend a route or something like that, I look at my pictures and I go, I could have done better. I'm just not sure how I could have done better. Well, I mean, it's similar, but, you know, with climbing, it's like I can't get to the top of a route because I'm not strong enough or I, I don't have the right technique to make that move, which is yeah. similar to, you know, in photography. Maybe I don't know the right technique to capture that particular shot. Right. But I still come back to, you know you are comparing yourself against other people. And, you know, as humans, we're notorious. I mean, most yeah. of us, right, are really, really bad about recognizing when we personally do something well. You know, I mean, especially with something creative like that. I, I don't know. 
are you capable of looking at something that you've done and been and, and saying this is really good? I feel like generally we're bad at that sort of thing. Yeah, I do. I do agree with that. Um, I think that some of my pictures, uh, interestingly, I, I actually think that a lot of really, really beautiful pictures are um, of things that are very rare uh, in the world and, you know, are just absolutely gorgeous. Like the best picture, one of the best pictures I've ever taken is in Australia, you know, and so you have like the the 12 apostles uh, with like the waves breaking over them and everything. And they're just absolutely beautiful, yeah. um, stunning images. And, you know, so it's like the subject is absolutely beautiful. And I wonder if like I had an iPhone, whether it would just look beautiful anyways, you know? Yeah, I think that's, you know, for a lot of stuff, that's the case. Some of the best pictures I've taken were on my, you know, on my phone just because I wasn't lugging my my nice camera around. Right. In right place at the right time sort of thing. Right. Right. So then so then that makes me casually dismiss all my beautiful pictures as like, oh, it was just the scene. And so I don't necessarily give myself credit for things, you know? Yeah, I mean but you know, part of it is a scene, but part of it's knowing, you know, elements when, of where Yeah, yeah. I mean and just how to how to compose an image and you know how to to use different um, photography concepts that I, I I'm not at all knowledgeable about you know but you know I think that there is some there's certainly skill to it right uh, but but also there is skill to, to finding the right subject yeah so one of the things is um, photography usually takes a lot of patience yeah you know and you have to so, for example, if you wanted to take really, really good pictures of uh, something, let's say that you're in Zion uh, National Park, right, and you want to take some really good pictures, you probably need to set up a tripod, you need to scout out your location, get the sun just right, set it up on a tripod, and take maybe two days to get the picture that you really want. And so to get, you know, just a couple of pictures takes a really, really, really long time. And I just don't have the time to do that. And it feels then like that's not a hobby anymore. That's almost like an obsession or like a real job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, well, the, yeah, there's certainly levels to it. And I, yeah. I'm sure that there are people that are hobbyists that go to that length uh, to get that picture. But I'm not that person. You're not that person because usually you've got... Uh, you know, kids or a wife that's yelling at you to get moving or you just have other things that you want to do, right? So Right. I think of this as like, this is probably true with you in climbing also, is if you really wanted to get, you know, crazy routes, you would have to spend a huge amount of your time working on it. Oh, yeah. Get better and better and better. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a, the idea is you reach a point where the only thing you can do to get better is devote more time, right? Right. And so at that point, you either have the choice to say, well, am I getting enough pleasure out of just doing this thing at the level that I'm doing it at right. um, to continue with it? Or have I, am I, you know, am I, can I find more time? Um, which probably is the answer is no. Or should I stop now because I've achieved what I can achieve? Yeah. And I, I do get enjoyment out of it, but I also find that it's somewhat frustrating too. And so it's it's like this mixed and, and what I end up doing, which is 
probably the the worst thing maybe to do is I go out and I take a lot of pictures, but then I don't process them because I don't want to I don't want to look at them. <laughs> and some of it is like the camera itself. Some cameras store more um, bits of information than other cameras, so you can actually get finer gradation between colors and you can get larger color depths and stuff. So if you're willing to spend, you know, significantly more on a camera, you can get one that stores better information about colors and stuff. Um, and so I do look for different colors when I take pictures and when I process pictures and stuff, but I don't do a huge amount of processing. Um, one of the things that I really like about processing is that when you take um, take pictures in sort of foggy-ish situations, like there's a, it's not necessarily foggy out, but there's definitely a lot of moisture in the air and things are sort of dull, then Photoshop like lets you bring out, bring the pop back in um, by adjusting basically the the blacks and the whites in the picture um, which sort of takes the fuzziness out pretty dramatically. And that's that ends up being like one of the most striking features. Um, one of the coolest features I find about Photoshop is when you can do that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. I think I, I have a bunch of pictures that I've taken that I printed, and most of them are you know, like in Zion or in the Utah, the mountains somewhere. And whenever I do processing, I always mess with, like you said, the white balance but also hue and saturation to yeah. to tease out certain colors and then also contrast levels yeah. are sort of the things that I that I try to adjust to make it look like what I remember it looking like which could be totally wrong. Right. But I've got a picture that I is sitting on my hard drive waiting for me to print because I'm going to make a big poster and put it over my dining room table that's from Zion last summer. And that image I, you know, it was a very, very specific moment when we're on this hike. And I just remember looking at the sky and be like, wow, that sky is just so dark blue, so deep blue, you know, because we're at altitude. And so, you know, thinner atmosphere and all that. Um, and then when I got the thick, the, the image and took a look at it on my computer, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, it d doesn't look the same. And, and so that's when I mess, mess around with things just a little bit to try to bring that out. Yeah. And now it's at least, I don't know if it's correct, but now it's more how it's I remember. It's what you remember, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I, I've i talked to somebody at work here who said that um, they have a lot of these, like images like what you're talking about, where they blew it up to sort of poster size. And she said that they usually spend a couple of hours playing with the colors on each of those. Yeah. Which seems sort of crazy to me. Um, but I guess if you want to blow them up and make them really big and sort of a centerpiece, then you spend a lot of time working on it. I mean, that doesn't surprise me because there are so many different tools that you can use to enhance or, you know, again, yeah. tease, tease out the detail that you might otherwise be missing. Right. Um, it is really overwhelming. And I, and as, as so I haven't, you know, I'm not nearly into photography as much as you are, but I've played around with Photoshop enough to be like, wow, I'm really overwhelmed. I'm going to put this away now. <laughs> yeah and and when you're processing something like 500 images from a vacation or something yeah then it becomes really daunting it just takes so much time well and that's the difference right so you know you want to get one really nice photograph 
And so you can, you can either take 500 images and hope to get lucky that one of them turned out just the way it's supposed to right out of the camera, or, you know, you spend two hours setting things up and two days sitting out at the site and capturing the moment just right. And then you don't spend two hours in post making it look better. I guess maybe that's the, yeah. the you spend yeah. the time one way or another. Yeah, that could very well be. But I mean, the the spending time outside, you can't get around that too much. Like, especially with lighting. Like if you go out to Zion at noon and you take pictures, it's going to just look complete garbage compared to taking it at dusk or dawn. Yes. Dusk or dawn is just going to be fantastic compared to noon. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a totally different thing. There is Antelope Canyon is a really famous canyon, and I think it's on Navajo land in Arizona. Uh-huh. Um, and you probably have seen pictures of like, you know, it's a it's a slot canyon. And, and just if you go at the right time of day, there's a shaft of light that comes through an opening in the canyon and just like is projected yes. through the canyon. Yeah. And so I was actually just curious about, you know, how people have gotten those. So I, you know, looking on people's blogs and things like that and saying, oh, yeah, if you go exactly at 1201 and you get like a two minute window when the sun is just at the right angle. Right. OK. Yeah. You need some planning here. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> It's really amazing how how much planning you actually need. And when you read, like these are a bunch of professionals doing this sort of thing, they do talk about how they scout out places and figure out the perfect angles. Like you want to look at the mountain from this angle, so that means that you need to come at dawn, you know, and you want to be 12 minutes after dawn because of blah, blah, blah but the weather is usually crappy. And so you have to have like a full week in order to um, actually get this picture taken right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it takes a lot of work to be really, really good. Yeah. So my wife has no patience for that. (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So I guess, I guess you have to either, you know, accept uh, your sort of role as a uh as a very good amateur photographer um yeah and maybe you can get some money for a few of your pictures i don't know put them up somewhere yeah maybe um, or do you have to uh somehow invent more time <laughs> i think that inventing more time is not really going to happen <laughs> <laughs> but maybe maybe once the kids are uh graduated from high school and everything and i could devote more time to this or something yeah absolutely I become old. I'll just do more <laughs> photography. Okay, yeah. So um, last time I got the interview treatment, so now it's time to to switch gears a little bit, Aaron, and and let me ask you a few questions about what you do and what your life is like. That's fantastic. I am looking forward to this. I bet. Um, so we we spent a lot of time discussing kind of my my job and and how things go for me at work. So why don't you give give us a little bit of a summary about, you know, what you do, you know, primarily at work. All right. So I think that our research is sort of similar, so I don't need to go into too much detail. Um, I also use a large-scale model, like a weather model of the upper atmosphere that describes, you know, basically how the atmosphere absorbs energy and how, like, storms are moving around in the upper atmosphere and stuff like that and how that affects satellite drag and things like that. That's sort of the primary thing that I do. Um, I also do a bunch of other stuff. Um, For example, I am the principal investigator of 
two small satellite missions, one of which is... So these satellites are very, very small. They're like uh, the size of like a loaf of bread. Um, and they measure, they will measure basically stuff in the upper atmosphere, like buoys in an ocean, uh, they'll measure stuff in the upper atmosphere. And one of them is sitting on the International Space Station right now and is going to be uh, ejected from the International Space Station like the end of February, and then it will start recording data. And then the other one, we're in the middle of building right now. And these are basically primarily built by students. So they're not like super sophisticated NASA type of satellites. These are student built um, satellites, which is great because it gives them an opportunity to learn how to build satellites and, and how to do all this stuff. And it gives me data so I can actually understand what's going on in the upper atmosphere and we can compare our model results with our with data from the satellites and do validation and stuff like that those are the primary things that i work on okay uh yeah. so, so i actually wanted to talk to you a bit about these missions um do you want to tell tell the people the names of these missions so they can look them up uh one is called cadre which is C-A-D-R-E. And that's the one that is sitting on the ISS. Yes. Yeah. And so if you do like a Google search of Cadre UMish satellite or something like that, then you'll hopefully find a page or two that describes what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other one is called uh, QB50. And QB50 is this like European mission that started many, many, many years ago. And some people got the idea that we should launch 50 of these small satellites all at the same time, all measuring about the same thing. And what happens is when you throw, it's basically like if you threw a bunch of um, uh, little boats out into a pond, they would all sort of separate out and diffuse across the pond and that's what happens to satellites when you throw them all out they basically diffuse away from each other uh, and you can get measurements along like a whole orbit track which is like a hula hoop basically around the earth so along one hula hoop uh, one orbit will will get something like 50 measurements and that hula hoop is spinning at just an incredible speed. And so we'll just get uh, basically this time sampling of um, what's going on in the upper atmosphere. An unprecedented time sampling um, if they all work. So the idea is that the Europeans basically proposed this mission and arranged um, a launch vehicle for it. And they told all of these people who were interested in the mission, hey, we'll give you an instrument if you bring a small satellite. And so about 50 teams from across the world signed up. So there are teams from Australia, Canada, the United States, England, Spain, Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. And they all basically signed up to bring a satellite. And at University of Michigan, we're building two satellites one for us and one for a school in Puerto Rico. Basically, we're delivering those, and then they'll all be shipped up to the International Space Station, and all of them will be spit out in two batches. 
uh, one batch of like 20 some and then, then a, a, like a month or two later, another batch of 20 some. One of the things I want to ask you about is because when I was at Michigan uh, a few years ago now, at that time, it, it seemed like you were much more limited in what you did as far as research. I mean, you were you were sort of doing a lot of different things uh, science-wise with the upper atmosphere community and using using your model for science mm-hmm. purposes. But at some point, you expanded into this like instrumentation role where now you're you have you know satellite missions that carry your instruments, um, and somehow you've become like not just a scientist, but also somewhat of an engineer. Yeah. So how did that happen? So uh, it all happened one day. Actually, I was sitting in a faculty meeting, and um, we were talking about the curriculum for graduate students and how the graduate students were learning all sorts of stuff, but they were not learning how to do data analysis. And so I, I, I basically was making the claim that we needed to make a class or something like that for data analysis. And so, of course, when whenever you open your mouth at a faculty meeting, you get something to do. And what they suggested that I did was co-teach this instrumentation class where we would just take two weeks or so out of this instrumentation class and do data analysis stuff. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. So I prepared like two weeks worth of material for this class. And I showed up for the first day of class. And basically the faculty member, the real faculty member who was supposed to teach this class, didn't show up for the class. (laughs) Um, He sort of didn't care that much about teaching. So I basically learned how to do this instrumentation stuff um so we had so the class was set up where every two weeks a new person would come to class and they would teach us about something so like vacuum systems or um, remote sensing or something like that and so i was basically keeping track of who was visiting and and what they were presenting and um stuff like that and I learned a bunch of stuff, and the students were learning a bunch of stuff. And they, what we would do is we would do um, lectures for a week, and then labs for a week, then lectures for a week, and labs for a week. And what I saw was that these labs were like all over the place. Some were really super, super, super easy. Some were really super, super, super hard. And the students were semi-interested in some and not interested in others and what I thought would be better is if we had more of a hands-on type of class Mm -hmm. and the next year I decided to teach uh, this class as like the balloon class so where where we launch a balloon um, and the the students have to actually build a payload that would allow them to track the balloon and everything and that turned out to be a lot of fun and very very interesting so that sort of got me interested in hardware stuff then another thing that happened was i talked to some people about small satellites and everything and i was interested in basically doing science with small satellites 
but I sort of got not really suckered. I suckered myself. I, it was me that suckered myself into being the principal investigator of Cadre. And so I wrote this proposal that was basically what science we could do with this small satellite. And it was selected, which meant that we actually had to do um, some of the hardware stuff. And I worked with a guy in aero, aerospace engineering, on basically the design of the satellite. And to give the students credit for doing this, we made a class out of it. Uh, we also paid students to do some of the work, but a lot of the students took it for credit, and I actually ran the classes. And so I was sort of learning on the fly how to do this stuff. And I became just more and more interested in the hardware aspects of it. As you know, um, our department is like a science department, and we are in the College of Engineering, and so we sort of stand out a bit. Some in a good way, because we do, you know, science-y type of stuff, but some in a bad way, in that not a lot of students are interested in science because they come to the College of Engineering to do engineering. Yeah. And so I feel like we need to do more engineering in our department, and I am, I actually take that to heart, and I figure, you know, if I actually care, then I should actually start doing more engineering also. I force myself to do it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's. I mean, I think it's a really interesting story because one of the things we talked about last time was, you know, one of the cool things about our jobs is to be able to do different sorts of things. And you've really kind of done that. You know, you started off being brought to Michigan, right, to, to do some modeling. And yeah. now you've got a couple, you know, you're in charge of a couple different missions and you're also part of another upcoming mission, right? Yeah, we're, um, well, it depends on which mission you're talking about. Actually, we, so from from my small satellite um, mission, I decided to propose a massive mission for NASA. So like a $200 million mission and it was going to be like 48 small satellites and stuff. And we called that mission Armada. And that never actually got submitted because of some um, things that happened, <laughs> um, which which I just don't want to talk about. <laughs> got it. <laughs> things happen. <laughs> yes, things, things happen. It was a very dark period in my life. <laughs> no. Um, uh, but one of the things that happened was... Um, a guy who's in the office next to me was talking to somebody from Southwest Research Institute because they both do planetary stuff. Mm -hmm. And this guy was like, oh, Ridley is submitting this mission, like this constellation mission. And so he got back to Southwest Research Institute and then called me up and said, hey, I hear that you're really interested in constellation missions and there's this earth venture mission thing coming up so do you guys have any ideas for earth science stuff and i am not an earth scientist and so i went to the other side of the building and talked to a guy named chris ruff and said hey do you have any ideas for a like a small um, instrument that we could put on a satellite and then we could make a constellation and he said yeah sure we could put these GPS receivers on and measure winds over the ocean. 
And I was like, wow, that's sort of crazy. And so we got together with some Southwest Research Institute people. We wrote a proposal for $100 million, and they gave it to us. <laughs> just <laughs> like that. Just like that. There was a little bit of work involved uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, write, to write this proposal that was about 200 pages long. Um, and it was, it was a crazy amount of work. Uh, but we got the proposal. And so I was involved, or I'm still involved with that mission. I am what's called the constellation scientist. Uh, and I think that, that Chris Chris gave me this title uh, because I don't fit anywhere else in the mission. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do anything with earth science, but I did all of the constellation analysis stuff for them. Right. Uh, all of the orbit propagation and all of these figuring out how we could like avoid collisions between the satellites and all sorts of stuff. Cool. And that, that mission launch launches in uh, October of this year. Yeah. Soon. It's com- coming up soon. And yeah. There's a big old countdown clock right up right upstairs <laughs> from your office. There really is. I think that uh, Chris, Chris likes that countdown clock exactly where it is because it's on the other side of the building from him and he never has to look at it. <laughs> that is true. It is in the space side of the building. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, wait. So I want to I wanna back up really quick. Um, okay. So you have this expertise, space guy, and so you understand you know, how things in orbit work. So how exactly did you go about um, making these sorts of predictions and, and determining how to avoid collisions? in this armada or constellation of satellites. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, without getting too technical. Right. Right. So I wrote a bunch of computer programs. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> basically what happens is if you are, so what, what is a logical thing to do would, if you have eight satellites, you'd really like to launch eight of them each of them on a different rocket and put it basically somewhere else. But <laughs> NASA doesn't give you that opportunity. And why not? Uh, uh, because <laughs> one rocket costs a lot of money. We're, we're actually paying about $50 million to launch these eight satellites on one single rocket. And it is the smallest rocket that will go into orbit that NASA... Um, basically has a launch contract on. Mm-hmm. It's called a Pegasus. Oh, right, right. And it can, okay. it can launch something like 250 kilograms into orbit. And 250 <laughs> kilograms is pretty darn small. Yeah, that's not right? big. That's, that's not big at all. And, and, and so, so your what, payload, I mean, what does your payload weigh? Oh, the payload itself is pretty tiny. Um, it's maybe three kilograms, something <laughs> yeah. like that. So you're paying $50 million to get three kilograms to space (laughs) well the payload itself is just the instrument so each satellite is going to be about 26 kilograms and then you have eight of those right right okay so that's a lot yeah 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 so the payload is the scientific part what is the the other you said 26 so what's the other 23 kilograms oh that's a good question uh so you have to have solar panels to get um, electricity from the sun you have to have a radio to transmit data down to the ground you have to have a computer on board that um, like does stuff and tells what systems to do what 
you have to have batteries. The satellite has to point in a certain direction. Like the bottom has to always be pointed towards the ground because that's where it, it wants to look. We're measuring basically reflections of signals off of the Earth. And so the antennas have to point towards the ground. And in order to do that, we need some sort of way to control how the satellite is pointing, which we do with um, little wheels on board. There are three little wheels on board. Uh, and when you spin up a wheel, then the satellite will rotate in the opposite direction. And when you spin it down, it will rotate in the opposite direction. And so these wheels control what's called the attitude of the satellite. So there's all sorts of stuff. You need, need to know, you need to figure out what your attitude is. And the way you can do that is you can take a picture of stars and then you can figure out what direction you're pointed just by what stars are in your field of view. And so that's called a star camera. And we've got one of those. We also have a sun sensor. So when the star camera is pointed towards the sun, that's not good. And we can't, you know, the sun is a star, uh, but it's too bright. And so you basically switch to using a sun sensor and that tells you like the direction to the sun, which tells you the attitude of the satellite also. So there's lots and lots and lots of stuff inside the satellite just besides uh, the scientific instrument, which is doing all the measurements. Right. So I had a couple of questions about that. So so okay. one of the things that, you know, you hear about satellites and in, in doing various things in orbit, you always hear that there's a computer on board. And so for some reason, you know, I picture, oh, there's a computer on board. It's like, an iMac with a desk, you know, with a display. And <laughs> yes. if you want if you opened up your, uh, your satellite, you'd, you'd see the display, but can, what is, what is the computer on board? That's actually doing all the sort of prelim the first round of kind of analysis and data collection and all this stuff. What's that like? Uh, it's much more equivalent to the computer in your phone. Mm -hmm. So if you basically took off the screen of your phone and the only way to communicate with your phone would be through like text messages or something like that. Like if you could, if you had an app where you could text message your phone to say, where are you now? And the text message would send you back the GPS coordinates or the text message would send you back like what's the temperature or, you know, whatever type of what's its orientation because you have like a magnetometer in your phone that tells you what direction it's pointing and stuff like that so if you could only communicate with your phone through text messages that's pretty equivalent to how you communicate with the computer inside uh, of a satellite and the, the size and everything is about the same too it's very 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 small Inside your computer, you know, if you opened up your laptop or something, your computer chip in there is only like one inch by one inch. It's very, very, very small. Right. Yeah, it's the brains of your computer, but it's very, very, very small. Okay, cool. So so that's small. You're sending eight of these things, and how big are they? I mean, I know you said that we, we know they're about 20, 25 or so uh, kilograms, but how? what are the, the dimensions? Yeah, um, basically the size of a small microwave oven. And if you added wings to a microwave oven. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good mental picture. I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, stick wings off the side of the microwave oven. And that's roughly what Cygnus, the satellite, looks like. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. 
And, and it's roughly the same size mass also because a, a microwave is, although that uh, microwave is a much less than 50 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, maybe about half. Yeah. Yeah. For astronomers, that's close enough. That's <laughs> right. <You> just <laughs> care about order of magnitude. Okay. So um, uh, now, now a hard question. Um, okay. Since we're talking about Cygnus, I'm curious about how, how does this relate to the end of the world? Oh, man. <laughs> I almost spit my water out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> how does this relate to the end of the world? Well, so Cygnus, okay, the point of Cygnus is to actually measure wind speeds in hurricanes. Um, and so, okay, the technique that people use right now to measure wind speeds off of the ocean, it's somewhat complicated. If you do a Google search for me and Cygnus with um, Cygnus spelled C-Y-G-N-S-S, I have a blog post that actually describes exactly how Cygnus works. But really, really quickly, the way Cygnus works is if you look at like a, say it's at night and there's a moon uh, a nice full moon, and you're standing on one side of a lake, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see the reflection of the moon. Yep. And if there's absolutely no wind whatsoever, you will see the moon as a very, very nice, uh, bright uh, thing. Yes. And then as wind picks up, it will make the, the uh, surface of the lake rough, and basically the amount of light reflected... Um, by the uh, by the lake will become less and less and less. So if you only measured the amount of light reflected by the lake of the moon as a function of time, you could basically measure the wind speed over the lake. But wait, is that true though? I mean, I'm pi- so I'm picturing standing on the side of a lake and looking out and seeing a full moon, and yes. then if if the if the wind picks up and the moon gets uh or i'm sorry the the um the lake gets rough i don't think that changes the total amount of light reflected it absolutely does the total amount of i, I would not just the total not just the amount that i'm seeing yep the, so the total oh. amount okay so some of it gets backscattered and some of it gets scattered off to the side right okay so so basically you've right. got a point detector and so the amount yes. of light that's detected by that detector will go down because more of right. it goes in some other direction that you don't care about. That's absolutely right. Got it. Yep. Yep. And so typical satellites, uh, the way typical satellites that measure the ocean, uh, winds over the ocean work, is they send a signal down and then they use what's called backscatter. So basically the light or the, yeah, the light basically reflects back. So if you were standing on the moon and you looked over the ocean or down to the ocean, if there's no waves, you wouldn't see any light reflected back. But as there's more and more waves, you see more and more light reflected back. And so that's called backscatter. And most satellites um, send a signal down, they get a signal back, and they measure the strength of that signal. And those work really, really, really well in rough seas Mm -hmm. uh, because they get a lot of signal back. But rough seas are usually associated with um, lots of precipitation, and the signal um, degrades in the precipitation. And you basically can't measure um, anything because the waves are, or the, the light 
is absorbed in that heavy rain. And so, like over a hurricane, they just can't measure any wind speeds. We can measure wind speeds because GPS signals go right through rainfall. Yeah. It's, it's fine. And so we're going to be able to measure the wind speeds within a hurricane, which is a pretty cool thing. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be able to help determine what the maximum wind speed is in a hurricane. And that's important because as um, a hurricane makes landfall, it's not really the wind speed that causes massive devastation, although it does. Uh, It does level things and everything, and it breaks stuff apart. It's the flooding that really does the most damage. And so what causes the flooding is that as the wind blows around in a circle, it moves the water around in that direction too. And so you get a big swell on one side of the um, on one side of the hurricane and not very much in a depression on the other side of the hurricane. And as you go and make landfall, that gigantic swell just goes up onto the to the land. And you want to be able to predict how big of a swell there will be, because that tells you how much flooding there will be. And what happens, what you'd really ideally like to do is just tell everybody to evacuate all the time, right? Right. There's a, there's a hurricane coming, everybody run away. But you do that, and if people's houses aren't destroyed, then they're like, oh, this hurricane, uh, the next hurricane, I'm not moving for that because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. And so you need to have really accurate predictions to convince people to get their trust that they should actually endure like the eight hours of traffic just to get, you know, 10 miles away um, from the ocean. And so it's it it's more of a psychological thing. You know, these accurate predictions are really needed for psychological purposes, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm sure that, I don't know, 200-page proposal, you probably had to make the argument that there's a huge economic benefit to people not evacuating when they don't have to. Right. So what we did is we showed um, in the proposal there are nice plots that actually show that we have um, improved our ability to predict where hurricanes are going to hit the land, but um, our predictions on how strong the winds are in the hurricane uh, has not changed for like 20 years. Right. Okay, so, I mean, when you say it like that, it, it sort of sounds like it's a it's a science mission to do research as opposed to a, a like a scientific mission to actually do better predictions. Is it sort of both or... Do you get All what right, I'm so, saying? Yeah, this is this is the problem. Um, NASA itself, so this is funded by NASA. NASA itself does basic research. Uh, they do fundamental research on like how does a storm intensify? What are the mechanisms that drive rapid intensification in hurricanes? That is a fundamental physics question. NOAA, on the other hand, does predictions of hurricanes, and they want to know when a hurricane is going to hit and where, um, so they can inform people to take action. So NOAA is like the operational satellite community, 
And when NOAA flies a satellite, they get their data down like every three hours so they can continuously run models to predict these things. Every three hours, they'll run a model and they'll get a new prediction of where the hurricane is going to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because we're a NASA mission, we're going to get our data down like every day and a half, oh. which is n- not very useful to NOAA yeah. uh, for prediction. But what this does is we're playing nice with NOAA, and we're going to give them all of our data, and they're going to be able to run hurricanes, like, basically retrospectively. They're going to be able to look back a month ago and say, oh, if we had had this data, how much better would our predictions be? And then NOAA, if, if they're, like, significantly improved, NOAA may build a fleet of these satellites also. Hmm. And they may, you know, this might be like the future of weather satellites, these really small satellites that have really simple instruments on them. Yeah. This is like a, this is like a pathfinder type of mission. Well, very cool. So we just spent, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes talking about something that is not actually your job. Well, I mean, it is your job, but (laughs) (laughs) it's not actually what you spend most of your time working on. Right, this is like a side project. <laughs> Which is what you get to do as a professor. That's right. That's very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my job is really to um, attend meetings, <laughs> um, to, yeah, talk to students about what they're doing, um, to work on curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, every hour is a different job, it feels like. That is very true. That is very yeah. true. Yeah. So, um, we, I mean, we, we work at very different universities. You're a, re, uh, a research one university with, with a heavy focus on, on doing research and getting funding and um, cranking out students and that sort of thing. So how many, how many students do you usually have in your, you know, Ridley Army? Uh, how many students do I have or how many do I want? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a two possibly very different answers. Uh, so the the ideal for me uh, would be two to three graduate students, uh, three-ish undergraduate students, a couple master's students working on um, like these satellite, well, I shouldn't say a couple, I should say like a 10-ish master's students working on these types of missions and stuff, and then maybe a postdoc. Okay. How's that? that uh, I don't know. That's fine with me. <laughs> and it, so that's that's ideally. And, and so what is it in in, uh, in reality? Um, in reality, I have the the most number of graduate students I've ever had is five, uh, and that was insane. <laughs> that's really hard for me to um, to handle. And the reason is because um, I'm very. Uh, mean to my graduate students and that I force them to write a lot uh, like I want them to churn out papers the whole goal of getting through graduate school is to produce something like four-ish papers and then um, to graduate and say I've succeeded and then somebody hires them to write more papers <laughs> and so I believe very strongly in forcing my graduate students to write which means that I have to read yeah. a lot yes. and edit a lot. 
and I am definitely the the slow cog in the chain. Um, and so with five students all writing papers constantly, I just can't keep up. And I can't keep up with who's doing what science and stuff like that. Um, so five is a little too many. Um, one is sort of too few. Um, two is an okay number. Uh, three, I think, is the ideal. Undergraduates, um, undergraduates are hard uh, because um, with a with a graduate student, you have you almost have like a guaranteed four years that they're going to work with you. Right. And so the first year is sort of like an investment. You teach the graduate student how to program, um, how to make plots, how to do data analysis, how to write, all sorts of stuff. And then the next three years, you hope that they're very, very, very productive. With an undergrad, you may spend a full year teaching them how to do all this stuff. And at the end of that year, they may say, well, thank you very much and leave, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that that is somewhat frustrating. Um, and so what you'd really like is a firm commitment from an undergraduate to work with you for something like two or three years. But that's the undergraduate can't give you that. Right. And it's just an unrealistic expectation. And so it's really hard to give an undergraduate a project that is small enough that they can do something meaningful on and large enough that it's worthwhile for me to invest the time into training the, the undergraduate student. And so it's I go through cycles where I get very excited to work with undergraduates and then I go through the opposite where um, it's sort of frustrating to work with undergraduates. And right now, um, I am in a cycle of teaching a lot of like freshman, large freshman classes, and I don't have a huge amount of time to devote to teaching students how to do researchy type of stuff. Yeah. And I also am not super involved with our department's undergrads because I'm teaching these big freshman classes. So I like don't even know any of our undergrads in our department, which is very, very, very sad. Yeah. Um, and so I feel very lame <laughs> in that regards, but good because I'm teaching, you know, 200 plus students a semester, <laughs> which is an insane number of students. That is, that is, uh, that is, that is a bit overwhelming. Yeah. I get yeah. what you're saying with students, you know, at, at, at Eastern with, you know, I, I always have, one most of the time one graduate student but we only have master students and so they're really there for two years and that's hard because you know in the first year like you said it's really teaching and kind of showing them how to do different things and then in the second year trying to get them to to actually now be productive and you're only going to get that one year and meanwhile you know as a master student you're you're taking classes during the semester and you're probably teaching a little right. bit too right and so it's and you're probably spending a lot of time in classes. Yeah, oh, and and they are. So it's it's really tricky to get a lot out of them um even if yeah. they're very very good students. And then undergraduates right. it's you know just like the same thing that you've said. Um I think I my most recent undergraduate I usually have one or two working with me. Um and my most recent undergraduate spent I think she spent a year working with me. 
but she was just having trouble, you know, doing coding and doing some data analysis. And she just got stuck for a long time. And, yeah. and, you know, I was trying to meet with her regularly and say, okay, this is what you have to do to, to make this code work. And then you have to do this other thing. Uh, and then at the end of that, I'm just like, you know, we're, we're not being super productive. So instead of doing like what we've been doing, why don't we just sit down together and we'll, we'll work on code together. Um, hmm. And that ended up being a lot more productive than what we had done before that. And, yeah. and it allowed me, instead of using, you know, these half an hour meetings or whatever, to basically work through the issues that she was having. It allowed me to sort of teach her how to code and teach her how to do data analysis um, while also accomplishing something that I wouldn't have ordinarily been working on because this was not my project. This was something that I gave to somebody else to do. Um, Right. So that ended up being okay. But ultimately, I mean, it's the same thing. You you really, if you get a year, that's about all you could hope for with an undergraduate. It, It gets tricky to go longer than that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the the nice things I like about undergrads is that once you've sort of committed to an undergrad to pay them and everything for like a year, um, it sort of forces you to actually work on that project. Yeah. Which you, you may push off and push off and push off if the student isn't working on it. But this requires you to come back every single week to think about that project and everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and if you don't have a lot of time to think about the project, then it sort of becomes pointless. Right. Um, you definitely need the time to mentor the students and to think about the science. Yeah. yeah. Well, hooray students. Hooray, <laughs> hooray students, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I actually just um, committed to directing three students for... Uh, large projects that are totally 100% not in my field <laughs> um, because I am the faculty advisor for the honors program. Oh, nice. And each honor student needs like an advisor to mentor, well, not mentor them, to direct their capstone project. Right. And I had three students who were having a hard time finding advisors and they're graduating at the end of this semester and they have to have an advisor <laughs> And so I stepped in uh, to fulfill that role. And now I'm going to meet with all three of them, you know, once a week to talk about how they're doing on their project. (laughs) I'm sure that um, won't be overwhelming ever. No, no. One of the projects is on mammograms. (laughs) What? I, (laughs) I don't, I, I honestly don't know much about a mammogram, Uh, but she is going to do a lot of research and I am going to basically figure out whether, you know, it's meaningful research and she's going to do a, a bunch of um, distillation of what studies have been done recently and there's controversies and everything. And so we need to look at both sides of the controversy and blah, blah, blah. And so I don't have to know a huge amount going in. I just have to know like how to do research. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, I, I could see that being doable, and especially you know for an undergraduate to have that sort of a project where they're, I mean, basically doing a, a pretty solid literary research project. Yeah. I mean that's that's a great project for an undergraduate. You yeah. Know, a lot of the times we'd like them to be doing stuff more hands-on, building something. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. 
All right, next time I'll expect to hear more about mammograms. I too, and <laughs> okay. my my knowledge is uh is is also very very minimal. Yeah, the only knowledge I really have is my wife saying, "I, God, I hate these." <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so I I have another couple of questions before we uh, we cut this thing off um, that tie more into your your personal life, but but relate to your work life as well. You know, because okay. as long as I've known you, you've been pretty pretty darn busy and that's sort of evident by oh yeah i'm, I'm doing uh this mammogram project and i'm i'm on this <laughs> this random satellite mission to measure the winds and hurricanes you know um yes. so you tend to to take on lots of projects and i think that extends into outside of the office so how i mean what sort i mean so what sort of things are you working on right now at home and and how how do you how do you find time <laughs> How do you find, I mean, the last year you built like a marimba. <laughs> That's, that is true. I did, I did build a marimba last year. Um, yeah. How does this how happen? How do I find time? That is, uh, wow. Um, I have a really hard time. So this is, this is, this is going to take a lot longer than the uh, number of minutes that we have left because it really gets into like work life balance. Um, and you can 100%, I could let work take 100% of my waking hours. I could absolutely let that happen. There is no question whatsoever that I could just work on work all the time and never run out of stuff to do uh, for work. But you have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, would that, I mean, um, there are people that do that and they're happy doing that. Would you be happy doing that? Drawing a line, no, just or working, working all the time. Working on, I mean, you work on stuff, but I mean, working on, you know, space physics all the time. Yeah. So, uh, oh, God, this was is going to show how much of a geek and um, a horrible work life balance person that I am. But a lot of times, um, I would say one of my hobbies is actually coding on my model. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, 100% work-related, right? Yeah. But it's something that I absolutely enjoy doing and don't get a chance to do at work. And so when I'm sitting at home and it's like Sunday afternoon and I actually don't have much to do, I will sit down and I'll start coding on my model. Uh, and that's one of the things that I do because I enjoy it. Um, and my wife thinks it's like, well, it is 100% part of my job, and so it is me working on the weekends, but it's doing a part of my work that I really enjoy. Well, I get that. Um, I, I guess yeah. I wonder, so I, I mean, obviously, I really like to write code as well, and I really like, but but I don't spend near the amount of time doing development for the model that as you do. Instead, yeah. instead what I do you know, at, on the weekends when I have some spare time is uh, lately, at least I've been working on really, you know, simple physics models. So one of the things I assigned mm. my students this year because in response to just me working on it at home really for just a little bit was uh, up uh, a computer model that just simulates a pendulum, um, but includes uh, nonlinear drag forces that are a function of position along the pendulum. Right. So like, and I yes. started working in that problem. I'm like, oh, this is cool. The students could do that as well. 
so you re you really like to code and specifically on your model it, or it, it could be oh i'll just any old project okay. at home would be fine yeah so um i am teaching this intro to computer programming class and you have to come up with examples uh like meaningful examples that students could actually do and so um one of the examples that i came up with is tic-tac-toe i had never programmed a tic-tac-toe game before uh, but it's pretty simple to do uh you know and it takes you know a couple of hours to really think about what is it that you actually want to do and then i made it so i could play the computer mm -hmm. uh like i made it so the computer actually thinks about what moves it wants to take and it can take like one move two moves three moves into the future and then it becomes really hard to beat the computer because it thinks so far ahead you yeah. know uh, tic-tac-toe itself is not that complicated uh but it's interesting to think about those problems and then to code them mm -hmm. up uh, a number of years ago i made an othello game um or reversey i guess some people call it and that is you know that the logic in that is much more interesting than in tic-tac-toe yeah. and it's a much more complicated game and um stuff and so I enjoy doing those types of things, setting examples for students and making we um, I taught them how to do encryption. And so I investigated new encryption or old encryption techniques and taught them how to use encryption and stuff like that. And that was pretty cool. We coded up like three or four different encryption algorithms. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Most of the time when I do projects besides programming, it's actually uh, because my kids or my wife want something. Uh, like um, a couple years ago, two years ago now, my wife um, basically said, well, we, had, we have this blank wall. Um, we have, in our living room, we have a wall uh, that has a lot of windows on it, looks out into woods and stuff like that. Um, but the rest of the wall is just blank, you know, it's a wall. Mm -hmm. And she was like, boy, it would be great to have built-in bookshelves here. And then after listening to her ask about built-in bookshelves, like, when are you going to build these built-in bookshelves? <laughs> uh, you know, the pressure sort of builds and builds and builds and builds. And then um, just one year over Christmas break, I just said, all right, for Christmas, I'm going to actually build these bookshelves. What happened, I think, was the previous, the previous Christmas... I gave her uh, like a card that said, I promise I will build you built-in bookshelves <laughs> for your Christmas present. And then she was like, the next Christmas came along and she's like, where are my built-in bookshelves? So I actually then had to really do it. <laughs> uh, so I spent, you know, a week and a half building built-in bookshelves and it just takes a really long time to do that sort of thing. And, you know, you need a, a span of time yeah. um, to actually dedicate. And that I think that's what I did with the marimba, too. It was like over Christmas break, I built the marimba. Yeah, it takes a long time and um, you need um, a bunch of downtime from work. Yeah. But I can't, I can't do that sort of thing. Like my dad um, will do woodworking or when he was working he would do woodworking like every night and that's how he relaxed he would do like an hour or two of woodworking every night and i don't have that ability 
Um, that it, to me is not really relaxing because mm-hmm. I have to think about it too much. He has been doing it for so long and is so comfortable with stuff that he he does it and it sort of turns his mind off and he thinks about other things and everything. Uh, but for me, I concentrate too much and it's like working for me. So I can't do that every night. I need a big block of like uninterrupted time for like a week in order to actually do that sort of thing now. Gotcha. <clears throat> yeah. That makes sense. So so then what are you doing right now to, to, to occupy your time outside of work? Watching TV. <laughs> okay. That's why you no. have all these recommendations for me. <laughs> right, right. Uh, this week, um, we got my mom a stove for her birthday, her 70th birthday. Uh, we got her a stove, like a gas stove, because mm-hmm. she hasn't had a gas stove. Uh, and she was like, oh, it would be really great to have a matching microwave that hung above the stove, too. Uh, but her cabinet is too big. It hangs down too low. And so uh, my brother-in-law and I went out, installed the stove, and then I took the cabinet home uh, with me. And then this last weekend, I cut the cabinet basically in half uh, and then uh, attached a new bottom to it and then some molding to it and everything. And these are like custom-made cabinets from the, like the '50s or so, something. So it's not like cabinets, like super fancy cabinets that you have today. I wouldn't take a table saw to the cabinets that I have in my kitchen, uh, but I did to my mom's. <laughs> um, so I basically rebuilt that cabinet this weekend. Cool. Uh, and then this weekend, this following weekend, we're going to take it back out and install it, uh, and then install the microwave. So you are woodworking. I am doing a little bit of woodworking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. A little, little bit. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. All right. I understand. My, my wife, I think would like it if you like called her up and, and, uh, or had called me up and, um, gave me hints on like doing baseboards in the basement <laughs> or, you know, any type of woodworking in the house, that would be very much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that, though, because then, like, I would get a call getting, <laughs> having some call. suggestions <laughs> yes, yes. on a few things I to do. I see that, yeah, you're, the room in the basement, Dave, is not exactly <laughs> finished. Why don't you uh, put up some trim yeah. and stuff? <laughs> yep. Because I love, I love trim. Oh, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> Actually... I hate trim because I am like one of these people who is satisfied with a project being like 90, 95% done. <laughs> uh, but trim work is all about that final 3%, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I am just not that type of person. No, not, a, not at all. Yeah. And that, yeah. then you, you do it and, and you left out that 3% and you're just as annoyed as you were yes. before it was even started. So, oh, absolutely. So why even start? Absolutely. Why even bother? <laughs> All right. Well, that was that was a that was a good good almost hour of conversation. Should we should we call it? It's up to you. You're running this shindig, man. 